So John chapter 6, verses 41 to 71. Hear the word of the Lord. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me... He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be a bit surprised at my text selection today. And actually, this is the first time in my 30-some years of ministry that I've done what I'm doing today. And that is to continue on in the series in which we are engaged. All uh, all years, every year, up to this point, I have tried to choose a special text for the, the Sunday before Christmas. And as I was looking for that text this last week, I began to reflect on this text. And I discovered something about this text. That's the next one in our series in the Gospel of John. And that is that it refers 
ten times to Jesus coming down from above. And there is no other text, no other chapter in all of Scripture that refers to Jesus' flesh more than this chapter. Now, what is the ostensible focus of Christmas? It is what is called the incarnation. Incarnation. And carne refers to flesh. So, uh, what is the celebration of these days? It is the enfleshment of the Son of God who came down from heaven. And when I started thinking about what this is all about and reading the text, I thought, this is an amazing text for this occasion. Because there are fewer texts that make more explicit the enfleshment of the Son of God than this chapter before us. Now, we are following into the middle of a conversation. And so uh, I should back up a little bit for those who weren't here last week and remind you that at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus performed one of his most well-known miracles by uh, multiplying bread and fish. And then having multiplied bread, then he began to teach about bread. And he began to point to himself and call himself the bread of life. And now we have the reaction. First we have the reaction of the Jews, and then we have the reaction of his so-called disciples. So first we see how the Jews reacted to this teaching about the bread from heaven, the living bread, the bread of God, who came down to this world. And what it says is that the Jews grumbled when they heard this. They grumbled. Now, this grumbling reminds us of the Old Testament where they grumbled as they walked around the desert. And what were they concerned about in the desert? Bread. Bread and water. And we're going to get to water next week. But here again, they're grumbling about this question of bread. And they're grumbling because he said, How can this one say, I have come down from heaven? And their argument against that statement on the part of Jesus was, We know this man. We know his background. We know where he comes from. We know his family. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they thought they knew about Jesus' origins. Now, the Gospel of John does not tell us about Jesus' birth. Uh, nor does the Gospel of Mark. We find that in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. But the Gospel of John assumes that we have the information that we find in Matthew and in Luke, and we read some of that in earlier in our service, the story in Luke. But, but the writer assumes that. But the ones who were hearing Jesus didn't know the story, and so they thought they knew his origins. And they said, we know his family. He, they're, just, they're just one of us. And so how does he, can he say that I've come down from heaven? And so Jesus, in response, in verse 43, tells them not to grumble. And he says this. This doesn't quite seem like an answer to their question, but he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We already saw this last week, but he reemphasizes that we do not have the ability to go to Jesus to understand who He is and to believe unless we are drawn by God to go to Jesus. Now, 
that uh, that troubles humans because we like to think of ourselves as the masters of our destiny. I can do whatever I want. I can go to God on my terms. I can go to God whenever I feel like it or refrain from doing so. But this verb is colorful. It says that we need to be drawn by God. It could also be translated dragged by God. And this verb, wherever it appears in the New Testament, implies resistance. Resistance to this influence. That's my own experience. Nobody was more surprised about finding me a Christian than I was. Now, um, I was not looking for God. I was not trying to move towards God. God drew me to Himself. And I found myself willingly and happily believing in Him, but it was because He drew me to Himself. And that's what He says. He says, you're grumbling about this, but you can't have this, you can't have what I'm offering, unless the Father draws you. Now, um, Jesus then accentuated, in verses 47 to 51, this image... This image of, oh, by the way, then he goes on and talks about you need to be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, verse 45. Uh, No one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He says, I'm the only one who's seen God, but the Father can draw you to me. And he can teach you and you can hear from him. And then in 47, he says, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And if, if if this section is confusing to you, and it was confusing to them, because the language is, is indirect and cryptic. It's an image. It's a metaphor. It's about bread. And if we're not getting this, then just look at verse 47. Because he drops the metaphor. If you want to understand what he's talking about in this whole chapter and in this whole book, uh, this is it. Verse 47. Very simple. No image, no metaphor. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's what this bread image is all about. Believing in order to have eternal life. Now, let's put this together. We saw this last week. We see this all through Scripture. In order to believe, God must draw us to Himself. But, believing is something that we need to do. And so we're told, believe in Him, have eternal life. And then we discover, as we believe, that it was God who was the one who enabled us to believe. Now, then he goes back to the the image here. And he contrasts himself with the manna. So we have the grumbling of the Jews that reminds us of the manna. And here he reminds us of the manna as well. Verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we saw last week, what does bread do? It keeps us alive, right? And that's what the bread did in the wilderness. He said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. But what happened to 100% of those who ate the manna? They died, every single one of them. They were sustained for some years, for some decades in the wilderness, but at the end, what happened to them? They died. And so the manna was sufficient to sustain their life permanently. He says, uh, this, this manna that came down, they ate of it, but they died. And then 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live Forever. So this is a different order, a different kind of bread. This is a bread that can sustain forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Flesh. Incarnation. Now, this is, this is distasteful. This is, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? This idea of eating Jesus' flesh. And, um, and the Jews were uncomfortable with this idea. This sounds like what? 
cannibalism, doesn't it? And, and this was very disturbing. Even if they knew he wasn't literally talking about cannibalism, it was still an, a disturbing image to them. And so uh, we find them disputing in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And uh, then you might think Jesus would would uh, make his words easier to accept, but he makes them more graphic and shocking instead. In verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Uh, Verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, so also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So he doesn't back down from this image. He makes it even more graphic. Now, because that's so unsettling, many interpreters look at this and say, Ah, we know what he's talking about there. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the Eucharist. He's talking about communion. But there are some very, very strong reasons not to read this text that way. One of which is this. If he were talking about communion, those who were listening to him could have absolutely no idea what he was saying. And he expected them to be understanding at least in part what he was saying. And so if we turn this into a, uh, a teaching on communion, then it was completely opaque and necessarily opaque to those who were hearing. But there's another, even stronger reason why we should not take this to be referring to communion. And that's because he has already said, what's the one thing we need to do in order to have eternal life? It's to believe. And now he says, the one thing you need to do to have eternal life is to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and to drink His blood. And if that means communion, we don't have one thing, we have two things. And these are contradictory things. If there's one thing is to believe, and the one thing is to take communion, then we have two different ways of salvation. One is through believing, and one is through participating in a ritual meal. So it can't mean that. What does it mean then? Well, it means uh, believing. It is an image of believing. What do we do when we eat something? What do we do when we drink something? Uh, yesterday, we have some family in town, and so what do we do? We ate Laspadas. Whenever somebody comes into town, for those who are out of, out of town guests, you won't know about Laspadas, but all the locals will know that these are the best hoagies in town. Okay? And so if you're here visiting, you've got to go to Laspadas. So we had Laspadas, and then we had barbecue at night. What did we do? Well, uh, because of the festivities, we ate a little bit out of our normal, normal way of eating, but what, what did we do with those hoagies? We made them part of us, didn't we? We took them into ourselves, and we, we integrated them into our lives, and this is an image of believing. Jesus is saying, this is what you need to do. You need to, you need to bring me into your life deeply so that I become a part of your life. Look at verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So he's talking about this this deep connection illustrated by eating and drinking. And if, if that sounds still strange to you, have you ever devoured a book or drunk in a concert 
or ruminated on an idea, or chewed over a matter, or have you ever swallowed a story, or have you ever said to some cute little kid, I could just eat you up? Poor kids, right? That must be terrifying. But what are we saying? We're using the exact same images here, aren't we? All of these expressions that we use in common English speech, what are they saying? We are using this idea of masticating and eating and swallowing and digesting to say we have taken these things into our lives and they have become part of us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, how did His so-called disciples react to this in verse 60? It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it calls these people what? (coughs) Disciples. So we would think these are the ones that are on board here. But these are the ones who are saying, we're not sure that we like what he's saying. We we signed on to some degree, but but what he's saying here is is hard. And so uh, we might think that Jesus would soften what he's saying to make it easier to, what, swallow, to, 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 to keep with the same image. But it says in verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now this is cryptic, but in the Gospel of John we find that Jesus ascends But he ascends, his first stop on his ascension is the cross. And he's saying here, this is offensive to you that I'm saying that you need to take me deeply, intimately into your life in order to have eternal life because I'm the one who sustains life eternally. What if you see the Son of Man ascending on a cross? What, what will you think then? If you're offended by this idea of this intimacy, of this, this taking me into your life, what will you think when you see the Son of Man lifted up on a cross? And then he says that you can't accept this, and I know you can't accept this, because the only way you can have this is if the Holy Spirit gives this understanding to you. Verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. He's already said that the Father gives life. He's already said that the Son gives life. And now he says that the Spirit gives life. He says, the Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. He says, some of you do not believe. Interesting. To whom is he speaking here? Disciples. Disciples. And he's saying, some of you, even though you call yourself my followers, I know that you really don't believe. And he says he knew from the beginning who were not to believe in him and who was going to betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So he emphasizes once again that that this is not in our own ability. He says the Father is the one who needs to give you the gift to understand by His Spirit, to understand my words and to take me into your life and have eternal life. Now, verse 66, we see what the disciples did with this. It says, after this, another translation which I I, I prefer, but either one gets at the same point, uh, is because of this. 
Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And the question is, because of what? Well, there are lots of options here. Lots of options. There are lots of things he said that that turned them away. There's some candidates here. Jesus had emphasized their own inability to go to God and their need for God to draw them. That might have been offensive to them. Um, Jesus claimed that he had come from above. That might have been enough to turn them away. Jesus insisted that belief in him is the only way to have eternal life, and they, they may not have liked that idea. He demanded that they receive him deeply into their lives. And they maybe didn't like that image, or maybe all of the above. Maybe the whole discourse was unpleasant to them. But for one reason or another, many, and it looks like most of them, turned away. Turned away. Now, when we think about this idea of Jesus teaching about us uh, receiving Him in the flesh and giving His flesh for the life of the world... We're getting at this whole idea of the incarnation. And if we think about the incarnation, and we ask ourselves the why question, why would the Son of God become a human, a fleshly, carnal human? Why would He do that? And the answer is, to do all the things for us that we can't do for ourselves. And if you, if you accept, if you believe in the incarnation, then everything else Jesus did falls into place. If you don't accept the incarnation, then nothing Jesus did will make any sense. Let's think about the main things Jesus did. He lived, He died, He rose again, and then He ascended to the Father. And why did He do all those things? He did all those things to do for us what we need for a human to do, that humans are required to do, but no human is able to do. Well, in his life, what did he do? Humans are supposed to obey the law of God perfectly. That's what Jesus did on our behalf, what we could not do for ourselves. So his perfect life makes sense if he is God in the flesh, as God in the flesh, living as a human, he lives the perfect life that we are unable to live. So we can, we can check that off and say that's complete. What God requires of us, he as a human is completed. And then we think about his death. What's another thing to which we are liable? Well, if we haven't kept God's law perfectly, then we are liable to judgment and punishment. And who needs to take that punishment? Well, humans. A human needs to take that because who sinned? Humans. And so there we look at the cross and we see that in the light of the incarnation, the cross makes sense because what did Jesus do on the cross? He took the punishment that we deserve. Well, there's another thing that we need And that is, it's built into us to want to live, isn't it? Every human being wants to live, and every human being wants to maximize life. We hold on to life, and we're troubled by the fact that our lifespan is so what? So short. And that 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 hangs over us, all of our lives. And so what do we want? We want life. We want life beyond the grave. We want victory over life. And when we see that, and that's something that we cannot do for ourselves, we find that Jesus' resurrection makes sense. If He is God in the flesh, living perfectly for us, giving His life in sacrifice for our sins, rising from the dead as a human, as the first human to conquer over death on our behalf, and then what's the last thing we need? We need representation before God. 
We need someone who can stand before God because we can't in and of ourselves go before God in our own name. We need somebody who can be at His right hand on our behalf. And that's why He ascended once again. All of this falls into place. It all makes sense in light of the infleshment of Jesus. But most of the people didn't like this. And most of the people turned away. So far in the Gospel of John, we've seen the euphoria of people beginning to follow Jesus. And now we're seeing the opposition get bigger and bigger and bigger, and people turning away. And so, Jesus, in light of the fact that, verse 66, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him, Jesus said to the twelve, now we don't know if those are the only ones left, but it looks like there weren't many left, So Jesus turns to the twelve. This is the first reference to the twelve, but from the other Gospels we know who the twelve are, the twelve apostles that He called specifically. He said to the twelve, and He asked them a question. And He said, Do you want to go away as well? Now He was expecting a positive answer. He really asked it this way. You don't want to go away as well, do you? But it was an open question because many, what? disciples had just turned away from Jesus. And so he turns to his first disciples and said, you don't want to go away away as well, do you? Now, Peter, Peter's great. You know, Peter sometimes really puts his foot in his mouth. But he, he's, he's always launching out with, with responses and he speaks for all the apostles many times. And, and sometimes he's way off. And Jesus rebukes him severely. And sometimes his answers are brilliant. And this is one of those times of brilliance. Because what he does here is he says this. He answers a question with a question. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he does a a quick survey of the options that are out there. And he makes a very, very quick evaluation of the options that are out there. And he doesn't have exhaustive knowledge of all the possible options that humans have come up with, but he knows enough to look around and say, Lord, what you are giving to us is unique. What you're talking about is unique. There is no one else like you. There is no one else who has words and deeds of eternal life. So, as difficult as some of these things that you're saying might be, as difficult as our lives might be following you, we recognize that you have something we need. You have something that humans need, and we are staying put because you alone have words of eternal life. And then, he maybe got off a little bit in the rest of his answer. He said, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And the we there is really emphatic. So he may be being a little bit pretentious there, comparing himself to those who went away, and saying, well, we have come to know, and we have believed, and then Jesus reminds them, 
that it wasn't they who chose Jesus, but Jesus chose them. In verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Let's, let's keep this straight, Peter. How did you get here? Uh, how do you understand the words of eternal life that I'm, I'm teaching you? It's because I chose you. And then Jesus ominously says, Yet one of you is the devil. Now that comes later, but we've already had this intimation that one of the disciples is going to turn out to be a traitor, and here he's named Judas, son of Iscariot. One of the twelve was going to betray him. I don't know if if you have a favorite Bible verse, you don't have to. And I don't I don't know that I have a favorite one, but one of my favorites is the first part of Peter's answer here. This really brings it all together for me. Because this is something I think about with perhaps too much frequency. I have a a defect, and that is I tend to be skeptical about just about everything. It's hard for me to believe things. But what it forces me to do is to think about what I believe quite frequently. Especially because I find myself as a pastor in the position not only of believing the gospel, but of, by vocation, persuading others to believe the gospel. And you might think, well, pastors, they're the ones who who never really have to go and check this sort of thing. On the contrary, we're in the position of persuading others. And so we're asking ourselves, is what I am persuading others to give their lives to, is this true? Is this real? Is this right? And sometimes I awake, three in the morning, and I'm asking questions in my mind. What's life all about? What's, what's real? What is true? And I come back frequently to this verse and this question that Jesus asked the twelve and the question that Peter asked Jesus in response. And I ask myself this, do I want to go away too? And then I hear Peter's response. And this cheers me at three in the morning. (laughs) To whom would I go? To whom would I go? And sometimes I'll begin to review some of the things I've read and studied. Would I go to Plato? Would I go to Aristotle? Would I go to Marcus Aurelius? Would I go to... Epicurus? Uh, Would I go to uh, Machiavelli? Would I go to Nietzsche? Would I go to Thomas Hobbes? Uh, Would I I go to Franz Kafka? Would I go to Stephen Hawking? If, If I were going to leave Jesus, and I were going to say, I'm looking for reality, I'm looking for what's true, I'm looking for life, where would I go? And and what are all these people that I've mentioned, and many, many hundreds or thousands more we could mention? What do they have in common? They've all made a stab at explaining what life is about. They've all made an attempt to tell us what's real and to tell us what's true, or to tell us what's good and to tell us what's right. And none of them. None of them. And we could add the religious teachers as well. Would I go to the Buddha? Would I go to Muhammad? None of them have words of eternal life. Not one of them. You see, Peter 
Peter blurted something out that is objectively true. Christianity and the gospel message that we have here is unique. There is nothing else like it. In all of the philosophers, in all of the thinkers, in all of the different religions that humans have come up with. And why is that? Because nowhere else will you find a message about the Incarnation. The Son of God becoming a man, living, dying, rising again, and ascending to God. All on our behalf. And as difficult as that may or may not be to believe, these are, my friends, the only words of eternal life. And so, to whom else would we go? There's nothing out there like what Jesus has to offer. Because there's no one out there like Jesus who offers His flesh for the life of the world. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus who came down, Son of God, made flesh, giving His life for our life. And Father, I've I faced this question a number of times and probably will again about what else is out there and where else would I go? And I keep coming back to Peter's words. To whom else would we go? You alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life. And so we, maybe falteringly, weakly, but we receive and affirm and embrace once again that message of good news and receive by faith Jesus deeply into our lives that we might be sustained not for just a few years here, but that we might have eternal life. And we pray this in His name. Amen.